Well, good morning, everyone here at One Hope. Wow. You know what? This, you guys, you got a great place here. I have to tell you, walking around with my wife and just telling her of this place, this is a huge place. What an awesome potential for you guys. Well, we are here today to do a little fill-in work for your pastor. He needs a little break and a little bit of healing in his life. So we're going to hang around for a little while and just see what God does as far as preaching the scriptures to you. I'm excited for you guys. God has some great things. I believe that One Hope is planted here in the Hebron area for a very specific work. God wants to do some great things through you guys. So anyway, you guys are friendly. We met your leaders the other day. And everybody was sweet to us. That's nice to have that welcome. Anyway, we are from um, Open Door Community Church in Erlanger, Kentucky. And my pastor is Pastor uh, Greg Isaacs. And he's an awesome guy. And uh, they know we're here and they're praying for us that we can do the best job that we can do to try to do the fill-in work that the Spirit of God does. So you excited for the scriptures today? Everybody got your Bible? Uh, you might have a little bit of the scripture up there. If you don't like to look up there, you can look at your own Bible. Or you might have a Bible app. That's the new way to do it nowadays. I left my Bible over there because it doesn't fit here. I was looking at this podium. Wow, <laughs> this is nice, but you can probably carry that around with you, couldn't you? Very nice. All right. Am I too loud or is it that's the way you like it? Okay. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 40. Hold your place there. Actually, we're going to have a lot of different scriptures. So today you're going to get a workout looking at the different scriptures today. Uh, we're talking about steering your ship so that you don't hit the iceberg. That's the subject today. It's all about learning how to use your spiritual GPS so that you don't run into things and fall into things and all kinds of things like that. So the title of my sermon today is called Navigation, Threefold Work. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need this. Someone to the right or left, go ahead. You need this. You need this. <laughs> now you see, some of you are already mad at me because I'm making you talk to people. You don't, you, I didn't come here to talk to other people. No, you did. Yes, you did. You need this. If you've never thought that the Christian life is something to be navigated, just hold on to your seat. It, it is. The entire book of Exodus is all about navigating, navigating through life. The fact is, we live in a danger zone of trouble, right? We do. It, it reminds me of the old Tom Hanks movie, the, the Top Gun movie. You know, they had in the background, highway to the danger zone. We are in that danger zone. This community, this, this state, everything around us, we are in a time of trouble. We, we, you know, we're, we're much like Afghanistan or Syria or Iran. We're just like them, actually. We have spiritual IEDs that are blowing up entire families right here in this community, in this, in this uh, county. We have political upheaval, cultural disorders, family breakdowns, drug addiction, child abuse, you name it, we've got it right here. And unless or until we are able to spiritually navigate through the, this mess, it's kind of like the potholes here in this county. I'll tell you, I don't, I, did you notice the other counties have better roads than we do? Why is that? Now, my wife and I, we come from Texas. We've been here four years. And uh, we came up here, and I noticed that all the other counties have better roads than we do here. I just want to know why that is. Because you can hit a pothole and bam, just knock your car out of alignment. But that's the way it is in life. For all of these reasons, the Christian must learn how to navigate through life and to do it God's way. 
And that's where we're headed today. Lest we become a victim of our environment. Some of you may be a victim. We need a Pac-Man mentality. I'm kind of showing my age. Remember the Pac-Man video games? Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And unless you knew how to navigate and navigate quickly and you knew, knew how to go, you're going to get uh-uh, uh-uh, right, eaten up. Right? And I can assure you that God gets no glory when we live underneath the tragedies and the oppression of, of this life, the difficulties of this life. We must learn the skill to overcome. So Jesus had something to say about that in John chapter 16. It might be on the overhead here. Jesus said this. You'll know the scripture. In the middle of the verse, he says, in this world, you will have trouble, right? You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have tribulation. But he goes on, but take heart. I have overcome the world. One translation says, be of good cheer. I've overcome everything. You don't have to worry about anything. I've overcome. Wow. Have you ever tried to connect the dots of what is he saying there? How, how does his accomplishments influence my trouble? Have you ever thought about that? How is it his victorious living somehow is connected to my trouble? He's saying here that you're going to have trouble in this world, but don't worry about it. I've overcome everything. Just relax. Well, here's how. It's true. He is the overcomer, right? But where does he live? He lives in us. Christ, the hope of glory. When we learn to connect with him, when we learn to abide with him, when we learn to yield to him, he advances us to his winner's circle. You see, he's living in the winner's circle of life. We're part of him. We're connected to him. And since we are, we have the ability to also experience the, the benefits of being in the winner's circle with him. Wasn't it Jesus who said that uh, he came that we would have life, right? To have life. Oh, it's wonderful. We're going to have life. No, no, not just life. We're going to have life abundantly. At least that's what he wants. He wants you and I to have life overflowing, abundant, rich, full life. Not just a struggling along, barely to get along one horse little operation in my life type of thing. No, no. So it kind of reminds me of the two men that were on the road to Emmaus. And I'm not talking about the Emmaus uh, operations they have all around the country. I'm talking about in the scriptures in, in Luke 24. You don't have to turn there. But when you look at that, that narrative, it was Resurrection Sunday. These two weary souls are walking along the path, and, and they're try they didn't have a spiritual GPS. They couldn't figure out what was going on. They had come from Jerusalem, and, and they're on their way back to their village of Emmaus seven miles, and they're conversing with each other, and they're just sad, and they're just weary, and they just didn't understand. So what happened? Jesus appeared to them, and he came along their path. Did you notice how that happened? You see, in the same way that those two men of, of Emmaus were walking along in their weary life, and they couldn't, they, were, they weren't walking by faith, right? And Jesus came beside them, and started to converse with them and started to talk to them. And, what, you know, why are you so sad? What's going on? Don't you understand? And they start spilling their heart out. And before you know it, their heart begins to burn inside of them. In other words, they're getting kind of enthusiastic about this man walking with them. The Bible says that he didn't, they did not recognize him, at least in the beginning of the journey. Isn't that like us? We don't recognize Jesus in our trouble usually. 
It's usually when we get through the trouble that we say, okay, now I get it. Jesus is with us now. Now I get it because this situation is starting to happen. Now I get it because he's starting to move things around for me, right? That's usually the way it is. Typically, when a church finds itself in trouble, when earth-shaking events and situations ensnare us at, at a local body, we instinctively turn to, the, to those foundational truths that we know. Most of us do, but you have to know something. Not everyone does. Tro- people act, react to trouble differently. Not everyone will understand the importance of what the Hebrew writer meant when he said in Hebrews 12, 2, he said, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher of your faith. Get your eyes fixated on him and nothing else. That reminds me of Peter. You know the story. When Peter was in the boat and he saw Jesus on the water, hey, Lord, I want to come to you. Do you really? Yeah, I really do. Come on. Come on. And the other 11 disciples, they're in the boat going, that guy's crazy because there's a storm. And Peter got out of the boat, and we know the story. He starts to walk on the water. He's the only disciple that started to walk on the water. And he was walking on the water because his eyes were fixed on Jesus in the trouble. His eyes were fixed only on Jesus in the trouble. But we know what what happened. He started to look around. He started to reason in himself. Hey, wait a minute here. What's going on here? I must be crazy. And he started to sink. It's the same situation when you have trouble. And so the first thing needed when you find when you find yourself sucker punched with life's surprises, you need to fix your eyes on him. You need to fix your eyes only on him. You need clarity to see the things from God's perspective. You and I, we need clarity. We need to be clear about what's going on in our lives. So how many of you remember the song? This goes back. I'm going to date myself again here. 1972, Johnny Nash. Does it ring a bell with anybody? Anybody know this? this? He was a songwriter and he was a singer. And he sang this song that I just love. It's kind of an R&B flavor. But it goes like this. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. Remember this song? I can see all obstacles in my way. Does anybody know this song? Am I the only one that knows? Okay, this song here is a great song. You could make, you put that on the overhead. We could sing that to the Lord practically. You see, our God wants to give us spiritual clarity to see all of the obstacles in our way, especially when the clouds of confusion and despair, they roll in on us. We need to be able to understand. So, Really, today's sermon is more about discipleship than it is navigation. But in actuality, discipleship and navigation are intertwined. You have to have both. You can't have divine navigation without divine education, understanding. If you deny yourself divine education, at best, you're going to tread water in your Christian life. You know what I'm talking about today? How many of you have have treaded water in your Christian walk. You're just barely hanging on, just trying to get, I just don't want to die, right? We all are like that at times. And it doesn't have to be that way. So we talk about learning to be a disciple. Now, I know discipleship is one tired subject in the body of Christ. 
It's time. We, we have discussed discipleship every which way that you can think about it. Matter of fact, we don't even use the word anymore in, in many circles, in many in Christian communities, because the word discipleship is so old-fashioned that, you know, uh, my, my, my guy, Rick uh, Warren, he talks about the, the culture doesn't know this word. If you talk to people and you, you bring up this word discipleship, they look at you sideways. What are you talking about discipleship? What is that? But perhaps we can approach it today with a fresh perspective. So before we can effectively navigate, we must first consecrate. Now there's a word. Before we can navigate our Christian life, before we can have movement in God, we cannot skip consecration. Now there's a word that I'm going to have to explain it to you because Man, I had to look it up myself practically. Consecrate means to cleanse, to make holy, to be set apart in your daily life. There must be consecration. Before we can truly enjoy God's supernatural direction for our lives, we must first learn how to move toward God himself. You know, the Bible says that we are to come boldly unto the throne. Where is that throne, God? I don't even know where it is. We can come boldly into his very presence. The Bible says that, doesn't it not? Yes, it does. And so in that process, we must bring consecration. I have to tell you, that concept right there is lost in the church, to be consecrated. We don't think anything about it. But it's all over the Old Testament, and guess what? It's all over the New Testament too. So if you think that you can just draw near to God without real consecration applied to your life as part of the process, hey, you're fooling yourself, guys. It's not going to happen. Our God, he, he, there's certain things that he wants from us. Now, I know the Apostle James. He said in James 4, 8, you'll know the scripture. He said, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wonderful. But you got to read on. How so? Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. How? You want to draw near to God? Okay, draw near to God. But how do you do it? You cleanse your hands. Now, it's a metaphor. Obviously, he doesn't want us to go into the bathroom and wash our hands. That's not what, what he's talking about. But our hands represent the things that we do in life. Bring them before God. Cleansing our heart is simply to say, hey, God, I just, I just want to let you know that you know, I've got this issue in my heart. I've got this. And just to, just to expel the, the, the dirt and the grime of life, that's part of consecration, isn't it? I think so. I th we need that in the church today. You should read the rest of that chapter. James just lays it to them. So the Holy Spirit is waiting for us to apply, I call it the perfume of a consecrated life before he will draw near. What are you talking about? What's this silver-haired guy? I don't know what he's saying. God wants to smell the perfume of your broken life before he will get near to you and me. I point the finger here too. God wants us to put on the, the perfume of brokenness, of humility, of worship. And he says, if I smell that in the room, I'll come up. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the Lord on Sundays, he comes to every church. And he's, he's looking for a certain, a certain aroma, the aroma of worship. If 
if that congregation has that going on, in other words, that congregation says, okay, we can, we can display our affection to you, God, and show, and show you how much we, we need you, then God says, okay, I'm going to come and dwell with you corporately. Same thing on an individual level. God is looking for perfume of worship. It's a fragrance of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He will not despise that, the Bible says. When the Holy Spirit smells that perfume of worship, it changes everything. So, you see, before we can jumpstart into navigating our Christian life, we must have this thing called consecration brought into our life. It's, it's very, very important. Most Christians understand that the church has a call to be salt and light, right? We know this. But, you know, Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. We understand that. And we see that how salt acts as a preservative and light offers illumination. That's a quite an amazing challenge for us, isn't it? The church has a call to be a preserving, moral agent embedded in the culture. While at the same time, we illuminate and expose the dark pockets of evil that are trying to invade our lives. What a challenge. What a responsibility. Because the church also is a collection of sinners, right? We need direction. We need encouragement. We need God's grace. We're, we're kind of broken down. So how in the world are we going to do that? Well, you know, we at times are unrepentant and susceptible to the snares of Satan. We are. We at times are ignorant of God's word. We at times are resistant to his way of doing things. I've been many times. We, in our humanness, in our humanness, we are prone to leave him every day, every day. We drift away from the presence of the living God. Our hearts become callous and apathetic. Me too, me too. I've heard some Christians say, well, real Christians don't really do that. Really? Really? Have you read 1 John lately? 1 John is a realist. John is a realist, the Apostle John. And he, he really talks about the struggle of our humanness. It's very real. So how can we transition from the grim realities found in our human weaknesses to the potentials only found when we answer the call to be salt and light? How can we do that? What a challenge for us. Well, we begin this transition by deliberate acts of consecration in our life. I challenge you. Start consecrating your private life. Start consecrating all of your life. Me too. Me too. We willingly abandon ourselves to him. We yield. I can tell you one thing. When you yield to the Lord, he will melt you. He's so rich. He, he's good to us. To know him in that way. So education precedes consecration. Can somebody give me a glass of water? I'm parched. Don't you guys? Uh, Y'all make me nervous. <laughs> oh, here it is. Here it is, Brian. Thank you. I just don't want to get all clouded up here, and then I can't even talk. This is important. Education precedes consecration. And consecration precedes divine navigation. And divine navigation precedes the winner's circle of success and blessing. Does everybody understand what I'm saying here today? 
What is this guy talking about? I'm talking about moving in God. How do we get our boat going? How do we get the sail up so that the wind of the Spirit can move us along in life? That's what I'm talking about today. Being set up for real movement in our Christian lives. And so before we go into Exodus 40, and that's our primary text, allow me to draw your attention to the geography of the story. You've got to read the book of Exodus. It's an incredible book, rich and full with meaning. The, the geography itself says a lot for us. We find three distinct regions of land that the people of God were commanded to journey. First was the land of Egypt over here. That was the starting line. When you get to Exodus chapter 1, they went into Egypt. They stayed there. All kind of mess happened. And Egypt, for us, it symbolizes the, uh, the land of defeat, the land of not working, the land of not enough, not enough freedom, not enough time, not enough money, not enough of anything. Everything is broken. The relationship is broken. The marriage is broken. The job is broken. The refrigerator is broken. Nothing works in life. That's the land of Egypt. Have you been there? I have. That ain't right. Everybody eating chili out of a can <laughs> without a spoon? Yeah, that, I've been there. So we have this land of Egypt, this territory. And from there was the desert land, which is where Moses was compelling them. He was, he was commanding them to enter into, the, into the, the desert land. It was a transition zone, the desert land was. It was a place designed by God to prepare them. It was a stepping stone to a higher place, to a, to a, to a different piece of property. So in other words... God had no intention of leaving them in the desert land. They came up out of the land of Egypt and they moved into this desert land experience and they were to pass through. It symbolizes for us a transition from the defeated land of our own personal Egypt to a land where God will now sustain you. Nothing to a little something. God will sustain us. God will provide for us. The desert was to be, become their Navigation 101 class to learn how to rely on God. In your Christian life and mine, God will take you to this place where nothing else works and you're commanded to move out. And the scary part of it is you're in a position where only God can meet your need. You see, in the desert, there is no man. There is no human that can help you in that season of your life. It's the desert land. So it's just enough manna from heaven, just enough for each day, just enough quail, just enough water, just barely making it. It's a land where he says, okay, I got to turn. I got to actually rely on God. You know, I thought my resume would do it, but my resume ain't doing it. And, I, and now I got to just pray, right? You get to that place where, okay, God has to do this. And finally, the land of Canaan. If you get past the desert land, and by the way, they didn't make it. Most of them in Exodus didn't make it to the promised land. You have to get all the way to the book of Joshua before you realize that. So the land of Canaan is a, is a new place in God. It symbolizes a victorious and bountiful land, a blessing, prosperity to God, richness in God. That was the land of Canaan, and they were to possess it. God says, I'll tell you what I want you to do. Now, he's talking to Joshua by this time. little side note. You see all, the way, all that land? Yeah, that's yours. I'll give it to you. 
Now go in there and drive everything else out. What? Yeah, I want you to drive out the enemies and then occupy and possess that land. They did it. So let me recap a little of this. Recorded for our benefits, we find three distinct commands. I'm giving you the exodus in 30 minutes, if if possible. (laughs) Three distinct commands for the people of God. They were commanded to follow the cloud. That's Exodus 13, Exodus 16, and Exodus 40. We'll end up in Exodus 40. They They were commanded to follow the cloud. They were commanded to eat the manna. And they were commanded to drink from the rock. There's the assignment right there. Follow the cloud. Eat the manna, drink from the rock. You do those three things, and I will be with you. I will cause success in your life. Life will go well. Follow the cloud, eat the manna, drink from the rock. You just go over that. Follow the cloud, eat the manna, drink from the rock. That's the assignment. I think that's brilliant. It was a threefold survival plan. Let me get rid of this before I knock it over. Okay. Threefold survival plan it was their assignment it's your assignment too yeah follow the cloud eat the manna drink from the rock here's the connection for us Christians we have our own Egypt as I've said we must pass through we must do the things that God says do in order to move in God so let's go back and just kind of reiterate some of the things Following the cloud. What in the world is this cloud thing? You know, in the Old Testament, they did such weird things. And you know, God showed up with this cloud. It was their desert, of, of, uh, their cloud of, uh, of glory that was to come upon them. So in Exodus 13, you don't have to turn there. We learned how God sent this mysterious cloud, and it went right over the people of God. And they were commanded to go forward. Now, the cloud was going in one direction only. The cloud wasn't going in different directions. The cloud was actually traveling toward the promised land. And so it was Israel's job to see the cloud and to follow the cloud. And when the cloud stopped, they were to stop. When the cloud moved, they were to move. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. That's how God wanted to do it. So by Exodus chapter 16, the Bible says that the Lord entered the cloud. And the glory of the Lord was now there. What is that about? So can you imagine God just kind of showing up? Could we handle him? I mean, if God really showed up, we, we need some kind of buffer zone, you know? And so to me, the cloud of glory is kind of like God putting on a robe to cover his brilliance. And he showed up in the cloud. When Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 24, don't turn there. The Bible tells us that the Lord robed himself in the cloud so that Moses would not be consumed. That's interesting. Why is that in the Old Testament? Everything you find in the Old Testament always points to a spiritual truth in the New Testament. Just about everything. Just about everything. So it's important for us to look at these things. And finally, in Exodus 40, we'll get there in a second, we learn that the cloud of glory came down upon the tabernacle. Well, there's another piece of information. The tabernacle, basically what the tabernacle was, was a double-wide mobile home church. I mean, that's really kind of what it was. But it was exclusive for just certain people, people that were consecrated. You couldn't just walk into that church. 
There were specific people that had to be set apart, prepared in their hearts, in their bodies. And in that place, the tabernacle, God would show up. Well, this cloud of glory hovered over the tabernacle. And as that story goes, eventually the, the cloud of glory hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. That's another story for another time. Look with me at Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 34. You can follow along if you like. Just a verse or two here. I think just one verse, just two verses. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wow. But you're preaching high in the sky stuff, preacher. I mean, how does that affect my life? It does. Let me help you out. It's a cute story, but is there any application for us? Yes, there is. In order for us to be able to navigate out of our land of despair and slavery to this great land, we must get uh, uh, comfortable following this cloud of God's glory. The problem with so many of us is we're too busy with our own glory, personally and corporately. We got, we're all up in ourselves with glory. And we wonder why God doesn't seem to be with us at times. The only way any church can be comfortable following God's cloud of glory is for that church to dismantle its glory. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. It's kind of like the woman who dismantled her hair with Jesus. You see... Jewish women typically held their hair up in a bun. The, the long hair was considered the glory of the woman. And so they would walk around and their hair was in a bun. According to the customs, Jewish customs, that's the way they wore their hair. But this woman wanted something greater than herself. And so she dismantled her glory, so to speak. And she came into where Jesus was. It was Simon's house. And she came in there. And she began to weep with, with tears of brokenness. In other words, she put on the right perfume. She was putting on the perfume of worship and brokenness. And she began to wipe his feet with her glory. Do you see the picture? We, to follow the cloud of glory is simply to just kind of step aside. It's not about us. I think Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, he talks about the five different things that that church shouldn't be, and one of them is about us. It's really not about us. It's more about him than anything else. So the cloud of glory is simply God's outer clothing to cover his brilliance, lest we be consumed. Let's move on to eating the manna. There's another crazy story out of the Old Testament, eating the manna. They were to eat the manna in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 4. We have God's response to their cry. They're crying out. They're so hungry. They had just come out of the desert. They finally got rid of Pharaoh and all the army, and they're, they're running for their lives, and they're in the hot desert. And I imagine their feet are going a foot deep into the sand. It's hot, and they're hungry, and they're tired. Pick it up with me in verse 4, chapter 16, verse 4 of Exodus. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk with me in my law or not. That's an interesting verse. So 
as the story goes, the Lord rained down these, these wafers, this strange honey kind of tasting wafers early in the morning. By noonday, they would melt, so you had to get your manna early. And you were only allowed to get enough manna for one day for your family only. On the sixth day, you could get double because you had to make up for the seventh day, and they were teaching, God was teaching them to honor the Sabbath. Well, that's a cute little story. What does it have anything to do with us? It does, it does. In John chapter 6, turn there if you can. In John chapter 6, Jesus connected the dots for us. So in 627, he says this. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. That's an interesting message. Translation, the message of Exodus, it's really not about physical food at all. It's not about physical bread. It's not about physical hunger. It's, not, it, it's all spiritual for us. Yeah, so, you know, God can feed us physically. That's true. He can and he does. But the more important truth here is for you and I to be fed spiritually. In verse 33, he says, for the, the bread of God, the real bread of God, is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, he said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am that bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. I love that. I love that. Wow. If I come to him, how do I get there? Well, I, I mentioned consecration, humility, coming before God, kind of letting go of everything else and getting before him. So if we as a local church body will learn to consume our own manna from heaven, and I would say that's the word of God. That's the scriptures. That's what we have today. The scriptures. We will survive this desert experience and we will move on. If we learn to manage our own hunger pains by ingesting this life-changing bread, things will happen for us. You see, the bottom line is I was in a church in, in Cincinnati and wow, it, it was an old and not very old denomination. And you might as well have put the Bible somewhere else because that really wasn't part of what they do there. That's how far many churches have drifted corporately how about individually i think in my, in my opinion the sunday school class should draw more people than the worship service i think that's the way it should be you and i need to be to we need to be able to consume what god says you know i call it the factory how, how do we get faith anyway how do we get faith faith comes by hearing oh so you guys know stuff okay that's <laughs> <laughs> y'all, y'all, your pastor's done a good job. Y'all, y'all learn stuff. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you, you hear information. The Holy Spirit comes and brings illumination or he brings wisdom to what you hear. And then at the end, you produce this, this currency that gets you to, you get to buy things with it. Let me do, say it again. You hear what God says through the scriptures. The Holy Spirit comes and he brings a wise counsel to what you're reading so that you have understanding. So knowledge and understanding produces faith. Faith is like currency to God. When you go to the Kroger and you put down the, the, the gallon of milk and the guy's waiting for you to pay, right? And so you got to pay with something. 
Well, the same thing, with, you need something in God. God says, well, if you don't have any faith, how can, I, how can we make an exchange here? You've got to have some faith in order to get somewhere with me. And, and that's the way it is with God. So it's important for us. Now, some people have the tradition of, well, you know, it's, it's the, the minister's job to expound the scriptures. Well, true, it's the minister's job. It's your job, too. Yeah, It's your job to know stuff. It's your job to know the scriptures. I challenge you. Get a verse of scripture on a 5 by 8 card and learn that scripture because it will come back to bless you in your hour of trouble. When you know stuff and you can start to quote what God says and stand on what God says. If you come in, I know you've been saved three weeks, okay? Give yourself a chance. Maybe three months, three, maybe three years you've been here or five years or I don't know. And maybe you don't know a whole lot. Well, I challenge you now. No condemnation to you. Get into the scriptures and learn the word. The psalmist wrote, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I love it. He also wrote, your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. He goes on, here's another scripture. This is my comfort in my affliction. For your word has given me life. We ingest the truths of God's word. If you, if you can't understand it, get yourself in commentaries. Get yourself a Bible teacher. Find somebody that's been there with it. And let them go over the scriptures with you if you have not. I challenge you for that. It's a great thing. So the message is simple. The scriptures can be, can be breath, a breath of life to your souls when you ingest. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther. Not, not, Martin Luther was like the foundational guy of the entire Protestant Reformation. He became famous for a five-fold statement that got him in a whole bunch of trouble, just about killed. But Luther said these words, and I'll just do one. Sola fe, sola scriptura in the Latin. Sola fe, sola scriptura. The message was only faith and only scripture is the foundation of our movement. Only faith and only scripture. They fed on that that uh, projected that it moved the entire Protestant Reformation. He risked his life for that. He risked his life. But the Apostle James said in James 1.21, here's another great scripture, and I love this passage. We'll, we'll move on here. He said, receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Now let me break that down a little bit. Receive with humility the implanted word. We see Jesus is the word of God, John 1, 1, and he lives in you. Oh, that's true. Receive what's implanted in you. So in other words, coming out of you is Christ. Receive the seed that's in you. Receive that seed, which is able to save your souls. Now, traditionally, we think of saving the soul James is, is making some plea to eternal life. I would suggest that the context does not say that. The word soul there is interchangeable with the word life. The context says he's talking about temporal life. So let me go over it again. Receive with humility, humbleness, God's word who lives in you. That word is able to deliver your life. If you receive it, ingest it, work on it. That word will save you in this world, in this time. There's that, uh, you know, Egypt, transition zone, 
promised land. Moving on. Drink from the rock. If we have time for this one, we'll go a little bit on this one, and maybe next week I'll finish up. I got too much. I got excited when I was writing this stuff down. I said, man, this has to be done. <laughs> we'll try to get this one done, and the third one we'll, we'll do next week. Talk about drink from the rock. What is the drink from the rock? Israel was to not only follow the cloud, eat the bread. Oh, this is the third one. Well, okay, then maybe I can get it. But we're to drink from a rock. What is this talking about? Well, you got to know the Old Testament. you got to understand what it's talking about. Um, Israel was complaining about not having any water to drink. Oh, Moses, you know, you try to kill us. You know, we, we, oh, we're just starving and we don't have anything to drink and it's hot. It's your fault, Moses. Lord was not happy with that. And so in Exodus 17, 6, you read the scripture. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock talking to Moses, the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders. This is the strangest thing. It's just one of those weird things in the Bible. Moses, take your staff and strike the rock. Why? Remember I said to you that what we find in the Old Testament, there, there, it's nothing more than a snapshot of a spiritual truth in the New Testament. Nothing is there just by happenstance. Moses, in a sense, struck the rock one time. He was supposed to strike it once. In this passage, he did. And in a, in a sense, that was the judgment of God on the rock. And out from the rock came this water that they could drink. It's a mighty rushing river. I bet you it was crystal clear, cool water, able to quench the entire nation. It was, a, it was a miraculous thing. For us, the message is simple. Our rock of Horeb is Christ, right? He, he's not a physical rock, but he, he's a real rock to us. He will quench not so much our physical thirst, though he can do that. He'll quench your spiritual thirst. Now, what is spiritual thirst? There's a distinction between hungering and thirsting in God. The Bible makes a distinction. Hungering is not thirsting, and thirsting is not hungering. These are metaphors, yes, it's true, but there's different functions of the Spirit of God for each one of these. It is when you, you, uh, you, you need something more than understanding and knowledge. You, you need a real tangible comfort in your soul. Sometimes it just takes a little song. You're, you're driving down the highway in the car, and a song comes on that you like. And it's giving God glory. And you start to sing this song. And it does so much for you. You see, that's, that's you're thirsting after God. So you're going to need more than an intellectual perspective over the problems of life. It's when you long to have a real encounter with the living God. You see, Jesus has set it up for us, for you and I, that you and I can have a real encounter with him. Not one that comes on a Bible not one that comes off of a page. You and I can have a real encounter. Matter of fact, he says, I'm going to pray to the Father, and together, the Father and I, we will manifest ourselves to you. We'll disclose ourselves to you. We will make ourselves known to you. How so? As you drink. Now, I have to tell you, that'll change anyone. Just to have a living encounter with the God. Look with me, John 738. We're going to be done. 737. Jesus is speaking on the last day of the feast. He stood up and he said these words. 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, notice this. This is the New, the New American Standard Version, I think. Out of his innermost being, that is the deepest resources of his heart, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. What did he say? He says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I will cause, I will, I don't know the right words here. I'm going to dig up this multiplicity of rivers that are locked up inside of you if you're thirsty. Now, I've learned over the years, not every believer is thirsty, right? Some believers are thirsty. Some believers are hungry. Some believers are hungry and thirsty. Some believers are neither because they're in Egypt, right? It just depends on where you are in your walk with God. What makes people thirsty? Hot, dry, miserableness. That's what makes people thirsty. So I gotta have, I gotta have God. I need an encounter with our, with my Savior. This is too impossible for me. But we know that all things are possible. When Moses struck the rock, water flowed out from within. It was an internal fountain poured out. When Christ was struck down, they pierced him so that blood and water flowed from within him. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was again poured out in their hearts, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is not for some time in the past. This is for every believer in Christ. If you're hungry, you can eat. If you're thirsty, you can drink. It's all about surrender, isn't it? Part of that consecration. It's all about saying, okay, God, I just give up everything. I just can't do it in life. I just surrender to you. We used to sing that hymn. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Do we mean it? I do. I do. I know you do too. We got to learn how to surrender to him. So let me recap in closing because my time is done. Let me recap. <laughs> Just so that everyone understands, this really is, a, though it's kind of a clouded message, it really is a very clear message for us. We're to eat the word, drink from the spirit as we follow the cloud. That's our assignment. That is, if we want to go from Egypt to the promises of God, if we want to travel in God, we eat the word, we drink from the spirit as we follow the cloud into the promises that he promised you in your midnight hour, the promises that he said, I'll make that happen for you. All things are possible. The promises where God says, you know what, I'll take care of that issue for you. I'll take care of that disease. I'll take care of that, that trauma that you're in. I'll, I'll do it for you. If you will follow this process with me, eating the word, drinking from the spirit as you follow the cloud. So when the songs are sung, unfortunately, we don't have that expectation. You know, I, as I mentioned, I came from a church in Cincinnati where these guys were singing these old Episcopalian hymns. Or maybe they were Lutheran hymns. Were they Lutheran hymns, sweethearts? They were like dirges. I mean, they, two hymns and you sit and that's it. And they said, we just want to get to the word. We just want to get to the scriptures. You get to the scriptures, well, we just need to go. We need to go. It's time. I said, why is everybody in such a hurry? You know, we need to slow down a little bit. You know? And so let's, let's see what we can absorb from God. They didn't understand what I'm talking about. 
So we learn how to follow the cloud. We learn how to eat the manna. We learn how to drink from the rock. Let's, let's stand and I'll pray and we can dismiss. Oh, I'm tired now. <laughs> let's bow our heads before the Lord. <clears throat> Father, we get reminded of our frailty, our weaknesses, our humanness. Lord, that by ourselves we can do nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Only as we abide, only as we cleave to you, only as we cleanse ourselves, as the Apostle James said to do, can we enjoy the benefits we can connect with you, that you soften our hearts and you take away the callousness of our hearts. Help us, Lord. Cause a hunger and a thirst to rise up in us. Cause us, Lord, to want more than what we have. Create it in us, if it's not there, Father, that we might be pleasing to you in all things. So, I, Father, I pray over this congregation that as we go our separate ways today, Lord, that they would just chew on, what, on this word in their hearts all week long to give you all the glory and the honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. God bless you. Shake a few more hands before you get out of here. Thank you, guys.